Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's the Louisa back from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, January 10th. Today, what's really happening at the U.S.-Mexico border and the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela? I hope that the Democrats get together and work on a problem that is truly, it's compassion, it's everything. It's also national security. Today, while the government has been partially shut down for nearly three weeks, President Trump went to Texas to visit the U.S.-Mexico border. We're certainly under attack by criminal gangs, by criminals themselves, by the human traffickers, and by drugs of all kinds. The president spoke at a roundtable where he sat behind a display that included a machine gun, gold-plated handguns, a large stack of confiscated drugs, and a literal bag of money. And he was once again trying to make the case that he needed Congress to give him $5.7 billion to build a wall. The president is portraying the border as this lawless area being overrun by illegal immigrants, particularly criminals. And the federal records just show that's not true. Maria Sacchetti reports on immigration for The Post. And she's been tracking some of the things that Trump and others have gotten wrong about the border and about migrants coming into the U.S. For the most part, what we're seeing are families crossing the border, unaccompanied minors as children traveling by themselves, teenagers usually. What he's not saying is that border crossings are near historic lows. Actually, during his first year in office, they plunged to the lowest level since 1971. Oh, wow. And they were declining, and they were declining long before Trump took office. They were declining because people are not coming in large numbers from Mexico anymore. Why have they stopped coming from Mexico? Various reasons. Birth rates have plunged in Mexico. The economy has improved. People don't want to come anymore. They're preferring to stay The numbers being down doesn't mean the president doesn't see that as a crisis. He would like it to be zero. So you still have 400,000 apprehensions a year. For a lot of people, that's still a lot. But it's nothing compared to what it was in the 1990s and the 2000s when it was routinely more than a million apprehensions a year. I think the peak was 2000 with 1.6 million. So what President Trump seems to be envisioning is a border or fence or some kind of obstruction from one end of the U.S.-Mexico border all the way to the other. What currently exists at the border and what would it take to carry out what the president is envisioning? The southern border is 1,900 to 2,000 miles long and it abuts the Rio Grande in many sectors. There is desert, mountainous also terrain in Arizona, runs all the way from down in Brownsville, Texas to San Diego. It runs right into the Pacific Ocean. And you have wildlife reserves, you have ranches, you have a lot of erosion. So the border is always changing. And some houses are right up against it. Like there are vegetable gardens right against the border. So it's an actually very diverse place. Security varies depending on where you are. So 
In San Diego, for example, people have taken to the ocean to try to cross. There are Vietnam-era helicopter landing strips, kind of these steel mats that have are pretty corroded in many ways. That you can actually go through them. In other parts, there are these 20-foot-high steel slatted, almost like bars in a cage, these kinds of walls, and they call it a fence. And that's really high, and it looks new and well-tended, but the Border Patrol often finds wooden ladders next to it. So people try to go up and over these fences, even though they're that high. And so along the border, there have been tunnels, people trying to go under the fences. There are levee walls. There are parks where people play soccer. And there are a lot of international bridges where people can cross legally as well. So there are legal checkpoints all along the border. So for the places where those kinds of obstructions or fences or walls, where they don't currently exist, those are more difficult places to try to build something new. It depends on who owns the land. Trump is not the first president to build a wall. A wall exists on 650 miles of the border. For example, in Brownsville, there's a farming area where the wall just runs out. Like there are gaps in the wall, so you can go through it. You don't need to go over it. You can just go around it in a way. You can drive around it. In those areas, the administration would like to build gates or extend the wall or the fence. But you have to go through processes. So if you don't own the land, it's not federal land, you have to seize it by eminent domain. So many administrations have filed lawsuits to try to get over three-quarters of an acre of land and things like that and to try to get it. But that takes years. And then there are families who say, if you build a wall, it's going to be on American soil. And then our farm is is so far toward the border that uh, that we're, we're going to be left outside our own country. Hmm. We're literally locked outside our own country. And each parcel of land could be in dispute. So it's it's not an easy process necessarily. If President Trump were to get his wall built, is there a sense of whether that actually would be an effective way to deter people from coming? So that's actually a great question, and it's an unanswered one. The Government Accountability Office recommended in 2017, I believe, that the government study whether the wall works, whether the wall and how the wall contributes to border security, which is a pretty striking thing. I mean, you're talking about spending ultimately what could be $25 billion on a massive wall. You should usually have an idea of whether it works. And the Border Patrol agents say it does work. I mean, just common sense dictates that a a giant wall is harder to surmount. But they do find ladders next to that wall, and people do find other ways around the wall. So it's hard to know. And um, the GAO has recommended the government study the border wall's contributions to security, and apparently that's underway. Essential to border security is a powerful physical barrier. Walls work. Whether we like it or not, they work better than anything. So President Trump over and over again has been describing the situation on the border as a crisis. Do you think that's an accurate depiction? I try to be careful when talking about crisis because there are issues going at the border. But if you measure by the numbers, by border apprehensions, people caught at crossing illegally, those numbers are decades old lows. What you do have is a major shift in the kind of migration, that it's families, families with young children who have finished a very dangerous journey and are about to go to jail with their parents. And that is a major change. Two children died in federal custody last month. So to many people, that this is a crisis. It's a humanitarian crisis. Trump, in his speech the other night, called 
families, you know, victims of smugglers. And I think a lot of people would agree with him. But the question is, how do you handle that? And the president has said, my response is catch and detain. So you're putting kids in jails that don't have any more room for families. So the kids are staying longer in these Border Patrol holding cells that were built for men, adult men. The president definitely has a real problem at the border, but it's not that the border is overrun by criminals. The border is increasingly dealing with families that the government is just not prepared to treat medically or to detain. So if it's mostly families who are crossing the border now, the fact that that experience has gotten a lot more difficult, that, you know, we're seeing families now detained in detention centers for a significant amount of time, a couple children have died you know, for better or for worse, like, is that going to deter families from trying to come here? I think it's an open question. You know, it depends on stability in these home countries where homicide rates have started to drop, but they're still much higher than they are in the United States. There's still political instability, hunger, all the different things that drive immigrants to come to the United States. And some just might be unwilling to try it just based on the news coverage of the two children who died. For a lot of these families, they're kind of making this calculus of where do I and my children have the best chance of surviving, like at home or going to the U.S. border and being in a detention center for potentially a long time, but at least like maybe being safe. It's people see that this is not easy. This is not an easy journey. And it's definitely not easy after you enter the United States. You can be detained for many days, you're pressured to go home, and it's really unsure what will happen to them next. ...de la República Bolivariana de Venezuela, comandante en jefe de la Fuerza Armada Nacional Bolivariana... Nicolás Maduro Moros. Today in Venezuela, Nicolás Maduro was sworn in for his second term as president in a ceremony that was full of pomp and circumstance. But while Maduro is getting feted in Caracas, the rest of Venezuela is in a state of collapse. From the supermarkets to the hospitals. Nearly 87% of the country is living in poverty. Hundreds of thousands of professionals, doctors, engineers are exiting the country to mass exodus. Inflation is so high that medicines and food are essentially priced out of reach of millions. They don't even have power. Sometimes they don't even have water at the hospitals. I mean, the doctors are discharging the patients because they don't want them to stay in the hospital and get sicker. Anthony Fiola is the South American and Caribbean bureau chief for The Post. And he's watched as Venezuela has suffered a devastating economic crisis. Every time I've gone there, and I think I've been there four times over the last 18 months or so, it feels every time you go like a nation that is slipping further and further into just this bottomless pit. You mentioned the huge refugee crisis that has basically come up because of how bad things have become in Venezuela. You know, millions of people fleeing the country for other places in Latin America, for Miami, for the Caribbean. Do we expect that that will get worse because of Maduro's increasingly entrenched power? 
It's a hard one to gauge. I mean, I think what we do know is that 2018 was by far the worst we've seen, right? There's been a, a gradual exodus from Venezuela for years, even during the Chavez years. But 2018 was really a tipping point in the sense that we saw, you know, as many as 2 million people leave their country. And if you take that with those that have left in the last four years, almost one in every four Venezuelans have left the country. I mean, it's just a massive amount of people that are leaving, right? We've seen some measures taken by the countries that are hosting a lot of these migrants, like Peru and Ecuador, where they have pulled out of what were essentially fast-track job visas that were offered to Venezuelans. So they're overwhelmed. What we may see is that the less welcoming approach that the host nations are taking may begin to curb the numbers, but I think it's still too early to know because, honestly, they're still leaving by the thousands each day. So how is it that the president is getting inaugurated for a second term if things are so terrible there? Well, Maduro won re-election last May in a vote that was widely seen as a fraudulent power grab. And it was not recognized by a host of countries, including the United States and many of Venezuela's neighbors. I mean, Maduro came to power in 2013, and this was after Hugo Chavez had died of cancer and left Maduro as his basically his anointed successor. But essentially, in more recent years, what we've seen is Maduro accused of repression and torture and constructing what is essentially a new Latin American dictatorship. His government also stands accused of narco-trafficking ties, immense corruption and mismanagement that has basically brought the socialist economy there to the point of collapse. So he'll start a new six-year term in which he is internationally isolated, facing insurmountable problems at home. And that wasn't the case a few years ago, right? I mean, th this is a disaster that is come on relatively quickly. You're right. I mean, basically, it's this toxic cocktail of woes. So you've had these socialist policies that were instituted by Hugo Chavez that were funded by large amounts of oil money when oil prices were high because oil is the lifeblood of the Venezuelan economy. They were able to fund these things. But what we've seen is that as oil prices have come down, there's been less money to go around in Venezuela. And they've essentially had to pay the piper for what were years of nationalizing industries that essentially crippled production. At the same time, you see a whole other level of corruption that has taken root in recent years, a whole other level of mismanagement. So taken together, what we've seen is this, I hate this expression, but this perfect storm that has resulted in the collapse of what was once the richest nation per capita in South America. So now that Maduro will be in for a second term, what can we expect to change? Well, politically, we believe that he will continue to persecute the opposition, especially now that they're trying to organize a relaunch and a reorganization. He'll keep forging closer ties with Russia and China to try to counter the international pressure from the United States and Latin America. He'll try to increase his control over his left-wing base. This is going to be a challenge for him because there are rifts in the official party over its leadership. And U.S. intelligence has information that indicates that even his own defense minister wants him to step down. He'll likely respond to these rifts with more imprisonments of military men and other officials. A human rights report documents how the government has basically used torture and the arrests of the Venezuelan military and their families in order to keep everybody in line. So we'll likely see more of that. 
economically, though, Maduro will very likely have to be more flexible. I mean, given the further collapse that is expected this year, he may start to accept more types of humanitarian aid, something that he has been resistant to in the past out of pride. But he's got some silver linings, too. I mean, the polls indicate that he is incredibly unpopular, but his opposition is even more unpopular. What action has the U.S. taken to help the situation in Venezuela? I mean, the U.S. has imposed sanctions on a long list of Venezuelan officials. And behind the scenes, the Americans have been doing their best to try to corral opposition to Maduro across the region. They've had a lot of success in doing that. And the U.S. position is shared by a long list of countries now. The U.S. has also dispatched a Navy ship to serve as a medical treatment vessel for large numbers of Venezuelan migrants who are emptying out of the country, as we've talked about. But there are also limits. I mean, you know, President Trump has talked about a military option. We've seen the administration probably more engaged in Venezuela than they've been in most other international issues. I just want to see Venezuela straightened out. I want the people to be safe. We're going to take care of Venezuela. Okay, we're going to take care of Venezuela. I think it has a lot to do with Florida politics, honestly, and the fact that you have some very influential legislators like Marco Rubio, who has taken this on basically as a banner and have insisted that the administration focus on Venezuela. If I had time, I would. I mean, to be honest with you, he has to straighten it out. He's got to be, uh, he's got to act a lot more humanely. The people are suffering tremendously in Venezuela. You know, what you see is this rallying against the idea of a socialist government in America's backyard. And that also dovetails with a lot of the rhetoric that we've seen from the Trump administration. So what we see is that it's become forced onto the administration's agenda because of Florida politics. But I also think that they understand that there are limitations that make it probably unpractical. And one of those limitations is the fact that there's still great resistance in Latin America to this idea of of a return to a more muscular, Yankee America, considering Latin America as its backyard. So, you know, I think the Americans need to tread a bit lightly, given their history in the region. But at the same time, I think you're finding that there are a lot of Latin American governments, particularly in Colombia, particularly in Brazil, that are torn on this. They don't want to see a return to an aggressive, militarized United States in the region. They don't want to see more interventions. The result of that is that they're trying to balance their distaste of Maduro and their basic horror over the crisis that's unfolding in that nation with the sense that, is there a line that cannot be crossed in terms of American intervention? And now, one more thing. Exotic animal milk. Post-science reporter Sarah Kaplan takes a trip to one of the country's strangest stockpiles. To milk an orangutan requires patience and peanuts. Luckily, they have plenty of both at the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. Batang is the zoo's 21-year-old orangutan mom, and she's just one of the many animals that have donated their milk to the zoo. The zoo has milk from hippos, lions, zebras, gorillas, elephants, marmosets, armadillos, a two-toed sloth. There are more than a thousand samples from hundreds of different mammal species. 
And each milk is different because each animal needs different nutrition for their babies to grow. Milk is just a fascinating biochemical substance. Mike Power is an animal scientist at the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute, and he's the curator of its animal milk biorepository, which is actually the largest in the nation. I mean, you think about what a mammal is, is, is a defining characteristic is that the mother produces a substance from her own body to feed her baby. What that substance is depends on the animal. Marine mammals need to get a layer of blubber quickly to keep them warm, so their milk has... Lots of fat. Lots of fat, lots of protein, very little sugar. Armadillo milk, on the other hand... Many milks don't even have 1% mineral in them. Armadillo milk has 1% calcium. That's how armadillos build their shells. Beyond curiosity, there are a lot of practical reasons why scientists need to understand what's in an animal's milk. Simplest case fairly recently, Cincinnati Zoo, about a year or so ago, had a baby Fiona the hippo was born. She was born premature. She couldn't stand on her feet. Couldn't nurse. So the zoo sent a sample of Fiona's mother's milk to Mike, and then he made a formula for her. The milks can be so different. You've got to figure out how to match that. Milk is kind of like mammal superpower. It helped our primitive ancestors survive on land. It allowed babies to be born small and grow slowly. And it fuels the development of humans' big brains, which is why we're able to study it today. That's it for today's show. Catch up on recent episodes at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports, or use the hashtag Post Reports to talk with us on Twitter about your thoughts on this episode. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.